Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hey everyone, welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. My name is Rain Wilson. And I am Reza Aslan. Yes, you are. Hey, Reza Aslan, just curious. <laughs> uh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Let's see, this morning I had uh, some delicious uh, huevos rancheros. Oh, neat. Cool. How did it taste? It's good. It's good. It's a little spicy. You know. No, 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 no. Reza, Reza, I really want to know, how did it taste? I mean, it's like, it's eggs and it's beans and it's like salsa. Like, it, that, it tasted like eggs, beans, and salsa. No, 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 you... no. Did the cheese and tortillas ring with hundreds of years of proud Mexican culture? Did the refried beans and chili pepper bounce off your taste buds the way an Acapulco sunrise skitters along the waves of the proud Pacific Ocean? Did the smooth texture of the jalapeno slip through your tongue like the silky sands of Puerto Morelos? Uh, I mean, it, it was a little overcooked. Uh, okay, folks, you see what I'm dealing with? <laughs> Sounds like someone here, someone in this podcast duo, uh, doesn't really understand food. That's not not true. Yeah. Not true. I understand food. Really, Reza? Really? You know what? Food is just more than than just the morsels that fill that we fill our dumb face pouches with. Okay, it's culture, it's history, it's identity, it's geography, it's 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 a story of immigration, of the movement of multitudes. It's all of everything and nothing at all. Okay, I, I guess I don't understand food. You're right. So, fortunately, for Reza's benefit, we have someone with us today who does understand food, okay? Stephen Satterfield is here talking about how does food inform culture and vice versa. Stephen Satterfield, I know that guy. He attended Western Culinary Institute in Oregon. He became a sommelier at the age of 21, like a wine expert, right at that moment when he was legally allowed to drink 
wine. Uh, and he's got a show. He has a show on Netflix called High on the Hog about like traveling around the world and understanding sort of the the cultural connections, the deeper meanings. You know, he has a there's a great quote that Stephen has uh, on what he does and why he does what he does. I think my work is a lot about building empathy because I try and connect people and ideas through food. I make media about food, not just because I love food, but because it's a universal language that we don't otherwise have access to. There are no other universal languages except for food. That That is deep. Profound. So, you know, this is a guy who is all about using food to promote social change. He is one of the most respected and prominent voices uh, in American food media. And we thought we would bring him onto the show to help us answer this question. Are we what we eat? Why did your voice Was go so voice high? Why did your voice go really so high? Really high? When I asked Are that question. Are we what we eat? Are we what we eat? Stephen Satterfield, thank you so much for joining us on The Milkshake. How are you, man? Where where, where are you calling in from? Uh, thanks for having me, first and foremost. I'm calling in from Atlanta, GA, my hometown. Uh, some good Always food in Atlanta. Good food in Atlanta and just, you know, a good time to be in Atlanta. And um, I always personally feel good to be at home. You have such a eclectic career. Um, you know, we'll talk about the Netflix show in a minute and uh, some of the work that you do with regard to food and social justice. But like, just give us a sense of how you came about uh, to you know this this thing that you do. Like, how did you fall in love with food? How did that begin? What's your kind of relationship with food? Yeah, for me, it goes all the way back to being a high schooler, um, and it was two pronged. One uh, was in the household. So my father was and is the primary chef in the family. Um, so very talented and enthusiastic home cook. Mm. And also, you know, I grew up um, as an elder millennial, really at the height of the onset of the Food Network um, in the late nineties when food culture was shifting really quickly, um, from something that was a European fascination or indulgence or a way of life into something, um, that was starting to be regarded and revered in, um, U.S. culture, uh, instead of what it had been really up until that point for the last century was, um, uh, a vocation to stay out of no vocation at all actually. Um, and of course we know, uh, for those undesirable jobs filled mostly, um, by folks who didn't have the agency to work outside of kitchens. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I was really fascinated with the media that was, was being made at that time with the, the rise of the food network. Um, so I think in some ways that combination of understanding food as, uh, the center of the home life. Um, as well as uh, an emergent cultural medium, um, you know, kind of define my whole adult life, you know, going back to, to high school. So that's interesting. Like you, it's not that you thought to yourself, like, I want to be a chef or I want to, you know, make food. It was that you wanted to explore uh, the sort of the media and entertainment aspect of food, food preparation, food culture, and stuff like that. Like from the very beginning, it was all very much geared towards uh, 
like a a a, a media slash entertainment uh, enterprise. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say that I was thinking that coherently. I I can't take that much credit. Um, I think that well, what what actually happened? I'll give you the the linear story. Is that um, I moved to Oregon as an eighteen year old um, to go to University of Oregon. And I lasted about one semester before I realized college was not going to be the right path for me. Uh, but I did love living in the Pacific Northwest. I love living um, in Oregon. And nice. so I decided um, to go to, to culinary school in Portland. Um, and so basically I was in this hospitality program. And one of the introductory classes is um, a wine studies class. And so, um, you know, you, you kind of get Wait, wine studies? Yeah, like vino, mm-hmm. like wine. Wow. Um, yeah, I know, right? And um, I was only 19 years old when I started taking these classes. <laughs> and I really quickly got into wine. I loved it. And um, my teacher at the time... Um, was a guy who was what they call like a garage winemaker. Like he was making wine um, in the Willamette Valley part-time, you know, for very little money and loads of passion. Um, but he's the one who got me hip to the concept of, of wine as an agricultural product, um, which for me uh, at that time, you know, I really only understood it as uh, a marker of class, you know, and a language that I that I didn't understand and wasn't for me to um, be able to interpret. So once I started to see it as something agricultural, I really fell deeply in love with it. I became a sommelier at a very young age. By the time I was 21, um, I was a sommelier. And really that overarching perspective of of land and place and provenance that is so central to the world of wine. That's really what got me into uh, a perspective on, on food and agriculture that was deeply connected to human history, that was deeply connected to stories of migration and identity. And um, the fascination for wine really became a fascination for capturing um, different stories and different iterations of that particular relationship. Wow, that's that's fascinating. You know, um, I'm friends with uh, Julia Jackson, who's the daughter of the Kendall Jackson wine conglomerate. And mm-hmm. um, she is a very active in climate change. And the reason she got into the climate movement, and she does a lot of amazing work uh, with her organization called Grounded, um, was because the family saw the writing on the wall of like, hey, I don't know how much longer Napa Valley is going to be able to grow the kind of wines we want to grow. And they've literally (laughs) been looking for places to grow wine, thinking about where's wine going to flourish 100 years from now. I mean, Mm -hmm. Iceland? Seriously? Scandinavia? So to add to what you're saying about wine, I hadn't really thought of wine in terms of an agricultural basis, but- then you add the climate change to it, and that makes it kind of all the more agricultural. Hundred um, percent. Agriculture has long been the canary in, in the coal mine for the climate crisis, and um, 
the interesting thing for me, you know, I, uh, I launched a, a print magazine in 2017 that was all about food origins. And ostensibly, I was thinking this is a food anthropology magazine uh, uh, that really explores the oh, relationship. Wow. And what happened almost instantly in our attempt to really uh, pursue this, this perspective of origin, um, we covered indigeneity a lot. We, we, we covered indigenous communities and, and food cultures and foodways. And in every single edition, we're now on our ninth one, we got stories from every corner of the world from communities saying, we used to grow this thing here and it now no longer grows. Mm. And so um, right away, we became um, a magazine that reported on this uh, relationship between agriculture and climate. Um, so much so that as the company has grown, um, you know, we now have a, a podcast actually as part of a larger network called Climate Cuisine. Um, which specifically explores these uh, relationships, both from a historical perspective and also kind of what it means on the consumer level today. Wow. So it's a big part of, of our um, kind of worldview, you know, as, as, as far as the climate uh, and, and food and agriculture relationship is concerned. Well, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a foodie. Um, I kind of eat whatever's in front of me. I mean, I like it. Me good, too. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> That's scary. And, uh, and so I'm kind of new to this, but your way of thinking about food and connecting the dots between food and culture and agriculture and geography and, and immigration and movements of population and sociology is really fascinating. And it was just a thrill for me to be turned on to your incredible show on Netflix, High on the Hog. I'm a little late to the party. I know it came out several months ago. But uh, uh, just a fascinating journey through the origins, roots, and kind of flourishing of uh, African-American traditional foods, what it means to American culture and Black culture and, and everything in between and world culture. Uh, just such a beautiful uh, story. That first episode in Benin um, seeing kind of where okra came from and, you know, yams and the and just the story of the uh, just seeing the roads that the that the newly captured slaves had would have be forced to walk, and then taking that journey with you back across to the United States, and and doing it from through the lens of food, just absolutely uh, beautiful, revelatory. So, but to you, in your own words, yeah. what is it? The goal of the show was we're here to tell the story of food. So. What is that story and how does that work for different cultures, this idea of telling the story of food? Yeah, thank you um, so much. You know, I uh, really have to say that my role um, in High on the Hog, though visibly prominent, was part of uh, a really large and incredible team uh, who brought this vision into the world. Um, beginning with the executive producers, uh, Karis Jagger and Fabian Tobek. And of course, um, you know, Dr. Jessica B. Harris, the historian who gave us the source material, the source text um, upon which the series is based. So, you know, um, as far as, I guess, the kind of 
motivation in, in the making of the show and, and trying to show that relationship. You know, for us, uh, it was pretty clear that um, American uh, food media had done a really lousy job of properly capturing and articulating the immense and foundational contributions Black folks have had to our food culture. Mm. Um, going back to how we, you know, began the conversation uh, around who used to do the cooking, right? And so um, while that perhaps now in, in hindsight feels like um, what a wonderful opportunity to to highlight those omissions. Um, you know, it took until the show came out just this year um, for for uh, anything like this to have been done to this point. And so what my hope is, is that this work will help others of all communities, of all backgrounds, um, really deepen their relationship to food um, and, you know, make these broader connections to our daily lives. Um, as I often say, you know, food is the most essential part of our experience on earth as, as humans. Um, it's the only thing that we all share in common as humans. Um, well, pooping. Which is uh, related. So I'll grant you that. What? How is it? But... When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. <laughs> There's a relationship. We'll talk after. We'll talk after. Um, so, yeah, you know, and I think it's just been radically underutilized and, and kind of, um, you know, as, as a global people, I think we really lack imagination around, you know, how food really can connect us. And um, I think, especially in these times, as we think about um, means of making and forming relationships and connections with people that feel in solidarity um, are really uh, potent and worth pursuing. Hey, folks, Milkshakers, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and we are very grateful for that. 
Do you have something that is interfering with your happiness or your well-being or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp can help. As you know, I am a big fan of the therapy. I have been doing it on and off for 20 years. And I have to say, it has made my life much better. I love the therapeutic process. It's like life's big questions, but you're posing them to yourself and then making a commitment to action and change based on your uh, vision for yourself. And BetterHelp can help with this. It can assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Visit betterhelp.com slash milkshake. That's better H-E-L-P and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health and well-being with the help of an experienced professional. Yeah, in fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're now recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. So this is the place for you, whether you need therapy or whether you are a therapist. I think both ways, it helps. Special offer for Metaphysical Milkshake listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash milkshake. That's betterhelp.com slash milkshake. Hey, milkshakers. And that name is appropriate because I'm going to be talking to you about milkshakes. Well, specifically smoothies. Today's show is brought to you by Huel, H-U-E-L, my favorite nutritionally complete food. Every Huel meal contains the 27 essential vitamins and minerals, protein, healthy fats, and fiber that I need in a single meal. And right now, I've been starting every day with either a chocolate or a strawberry shake. And it's fantastic. It's 400 calories, and it gets me through till lunch. I don't feel hungry, and I'm not snacking. You can just work it into your life. When you're busy, when you're on the go, you don't want to be overeating and snacking like I do in my middle age. It keeps you on a routine. It makes me feel happier, healthier, and fitter no matter how busy I am. You got to try it, folks. Well, here's the good news. We're partnering with Huel to give all our listeners a free t-shirt. I actually have this t-shirt. It's it's so soft. Like I sleep in it. It's silky. Can you it's eat It's a really it? soft and silky shirt. Uh, and not just a t-shirt but a free on-the-go pot and free shipping with your first order. So all you got to do is go to Huel.com slash milkshake to take advantage of this offer. You know, supporting our sponsors helps us make this show for you. So show Huel some love. All you got to do is go online and you can claim your free t-shirt, your free on-the-go pot, and get free shipping with your first order. Just go to Huel.com slash milkshake. That's Huel, H-U-E-L humanfuel.com slash milkshake. Yes, food can connect us. We talk about that all the time. People, you know, uh, you know, from the days of the potluck to, you know, or the potlatch, as, as it said, um, to, you know, Thanksgiving and, you know, the, the ways in which we can use food to create community and stuff. But food also divides us, right? I mean, food... Mm-hmm. Uh, is and this is what I love about your work is that you acknowledge the fact that food is inherently political, right? That it's not just a thing that you eat. There's so much more to it. the The subject of this podcast episode is, "Are we what we eat?" And it and what I find fascinating 
is the intersection of your work when it comes to things like food and identity, food and cultural appropriation, um, you know, even like food wars. Like I, I, I think to myself all the time about, you know, um, the hummus wars. Are you familiar with the hummus wars, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> like, I am. Or is it, uh, we brown people are obsessed with, you know, who owns hummus, right? Mm. Like if you've been to Israel, Palestine, you know, there are, there are like battles on the street that are taking place, not over, you know, occupation or the stealing of land or, you know, whose God is right, but over where hummus came from and who makes it best, you know, and uh, you want to piss off, you know, an Arab, uh, you know, call hummus Israeli. And they will lose their minds. So, so much about the things that we eat are, whether we're conscious of it or not, uh, you know, defining who we are as individuals and, and collective. Can you can you talk about the, sort of the inherently political nature of food? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really quite simple, and it's about the land, right? from um, the the 10,000-year story, the, the shorter version um, of, of human history is about agriculture over the last 10,000 years. And of course, before then, um, we were migratory people who were on the move looking for our next meal, however that may come. And so as societies uh, globally ha have started to you know, settle into permanent fixtures of land as a way of life, that's really, in my view, the, the beginning of the central conflict of food. And this is why we always uh, connect the story of food to stories of migration. Mm. And so, you know, uh, in more recent history, um, at the, the onset of colonization, um, what really started to happen is a uh, philosophical divergence between the purpose of, of the land and which um, a, a European ideology was about exploiting the land for profit and tying the land and food even to a, uh, a sea-based kind of global strategy for domination, right? And in the Americas, we'll just talk about where, where I'm from, my, our corner of the world, you have uh, indigenous populations who um, basically have been stewarding the land and in much different relationship to the land. Mm -hmm. And that conflict, uh, really the, the reason that, that Europeans arrive um, in droves in the, the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century is to come to the U.S. to find opportunities that have to do with land, right? Um, including now today with the, the, the dream of a single family home. And so what has, has happened um, is that the the dominant uh, cultural um, force the in a society um, in societies in which there are 
dominant cultural groups, whether that be based on uh, race or ethnicity, these become the groups that get to uh, write the historical record, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's no coincidence when we talk about, well, how did it take until 2021 for a show about the contributions of Black food to come out? Well, because Black folks have not been the authors of our own history in this country for reasons that I think are obvious, Mm -hmm. right? And so when you talk about food, what you're really talking about uh, and, and why I think there's so much intensity around it is twofold, because really you're talking about, um, again, a story of migration or displacement. A migration story is either your community, your ancestors being forced off of their land, right, for for greater opportunity or fleeing the land because they were under threat. In other words, their way of life could no longer happen in their homeland. And so this fracture, again, oftentimes from marginalized groups who have to leave the homeland, the thing that we hold on to in our new homes that we must piece together are these cultural memories of the foods of our home. That's what we get to take with us. Mm. Yeah, see, this is fat. I love this because... I think we don't think about food as a shorthand for identity, ethnicity, race, culture, even religion, right? But it it so obviously is the way that you talk about it. And then also, you know, you were talking about this idea of like, you know, we talk a lot about cultural appropriation, right? It's a very big buzzword right now, but we don't talk enough about food appropriation, you know, I was thinking about how I was listening to somebody talk about like what it means to be British, you know, and they're always like, well, it, you know, it's a love of tea. It's like, motherfucker, you stole that tea. You stole that <laughs> it's a love of tea, tea from India. And it's a love of curry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's all right. stuff that you appropriated is how you define what it means to be a white British man uh, right now. And obviously that, I mean, we could talk all day about the way in which in the United States we have appropriated the sort of cultural foods of black folks, you know, um, Mm. and turn it into these, you know, kind of hybrid crazy, you know. uh, Nashville hot chicken. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about how like you could go to a restaurant now and buy like a $90 red beans and rice dish, you know, at like a fancy restaurant. It's insane. On and on. Um, it's it's absolutely right that if you if you understand what food actually means uh, and how political it is inherently political it is then the way that we treat food the way that we treat you know the food of other cultures um, it, it says so much about who we are as individuals and and as a and as a culture as a civilization. Yeah, I mean, imagine going on like a first date or something, or or your significant other coming to your house and eating your your mom or your auntie or granny's food, and and not finishing and not really enjoying. I mean, think about across Ooh. cultures across the world. Yeah, you know, that's a tense situation all of a sudden, yeah. right? You have hard choices to make, right? So, so when we think about just in our own lives, you know, we may not be able to make the relationship about just how intensely protective we are around our cultural foods. 
But when it when it comes up in, in real life, like we have all been in a situation where we've felt some kind of uh, discomfort or perhaps even rage when our mom's foods, our favorite foods, things that we love and think are delicious that are part of who we are, are kind of undermined or not appreciated by other people. Is your company or business having a tough time hiring the people you need? I mean, all you got to do is listen to the news and you know that, you know, companies are having a hard time keeping up with hiring. Well, now there's Workable. Workable helps all types of companies. There are currently 46% more jobs being posted than before the pandemic. That's and crazy. There are 44% fewer candidates applying to each one. People are getting very picky nowadays, you know? So... You need to find the right candidates and hire them fast and Workable can help. Workable accelerates every step of your hiring process from find to hire. Workable helps you cast the widest net possible by posting your jobs to all the top job boards. That's actually a little more than 200 with just one click. And it helps you evaluate and hire quickly with modern tools like video interviews and e-signatures. And also Workable will help you automate repetitive tasks like scheduling interviews so you can spend your time on what's important, making hires. Rain, I mean, you go through personal assistance like, you know, like it's like, nothing, right? Like, like, like tissue. Like, no like one... it's like butter, like wheat. For What's the metaphor? <laughs> like something. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless of what you're looking for, whether you're hiring for your coffee shop or your engineering team or your personal assistant to get your dry cleaning, Workable is exactly what you need to hire the right people fast. So start hiring today with a risk-free 15-day trial. If you hire during the trial, which many do, it won't cost you a thing. Just go to Workable.com to start hiring. Workable is hiring made easy. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, and this, I mean, it gets into tricky territory. I remember, I, I don't remember the chef's name, but there was a chef I was reading about uh, who was more of like an Instagram kind of chef blogger who like took a Philippine dish and kind of made it her own. She was a white woman and there was a big uproar of like, hey, this is our native food. We have our, you know, my family's been making it for generations and it's hundreds of years old and you can't just kind of, take this recipe and dress it up different and call it something else. Like that's, that's disrespectful. Um, but yet we live in a country where if you name American food, you know, it's hamburgers and hot dogs, which are German and uh, pizza, which is Italian and maybe even tacos right. that are Mexican. So, yeah, like <laughs> you know, and even fried chicken, I mean, Asians have been certainly making fried chicken, but it seems to me like the new wave of like Korean fried chicken is like, hey, let's take African-American traditional fried chicken and how well it's done and then bring it 10,000 miles over the sea and do our version of it. So there's all of this communication about food going on at the same time. So how do we, how do we walk that balance? 
I could walk to three Korean fried chicken restaurants from my house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. Um, that's like... Uh... A selling point for the real estate agent. It's, a, it's all that's all <laughs> within LA, walking. Man, that's all that there is. Taco trucks and Korean fried chicken. It's true, 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 true. Yeah, I mean the way that I think about it, and there's plenty of of thought on this subject on the internet, so people can form their own opinions. But my feeling, I'm sure is it's that all very reasonable, extremely I'm sure it's courteous, totally reasonable too. rational, um, measured, consultative. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, you know, my feeling is that um, I really the line for me is just around profit. You know, and by that I mean, um, even as a blogger, if you are um, positioning yourself as uh, an enthusiast, right? Where you're just kind of following along and cooking. Hi, this is my, my cooking, you know, journal, diary, what have you, for y'all to follow along at home. Like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard for me to have a strong emotional reaction to that if I'm being real. Um, I don't expect folks to have the kind of cultural education and nuance to really be able to necessarily discern how they could be uh, offensive or, or kind of appropriating. What I do have a problem with um, is when these same sometimes enthusiasts um, begin to uh, position themselves as experts and then in various ways monetize that expertise. Mm. And, and for me, you know, that includes sponsorships, um, Instagram influencer revenue, um, because there is a responsibility that comes with audience, with distribution, with scale. We've already seen how uh, things can kind of go awry without proper um, oversight of, of distribution. And so if you're profiting whether as, and this is especially um, contentious in restaurants, right? When the types of folks who get to open restaurants and profit from these recipes and from these cuisines is quite a distance away from the folks who have this cultural memory, right? These family recipes. And so that is really where you see the kind of, uh, I think, most justifiable anger and kind of the, the greatest tension in, in matters of cultural appropriation. Um, and then, you know, as I say, for me on the other end of the spectrum are people who have basically very small or, or no followings um, or who are, are kind of amateurs, I, I could say. Um, but once you position yourself as an expert and you are wielding recipes that are part of another culture's story, particularly if it is a marginalized culture whose stories are already so hard for others to access for all the reasons that we just talked about. I do believe there is a responsibility that comes along with that. And so a lot of the anger and frustration that folks have expressed on the internet has really been about uh, the most profitable uh, voices on the internet, um, and in many cases, outlets on the internet who control uh, or who, who are able to best monetize their, their content um, are the ones who are appropriating. And uh, of course, the same for the restaurants as well. So Stephen, here's, here's my position. Growing up in suburban Seattle, 
with uh, relatives from uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin. Um, the main dish at my house was my father's uh, world-famous tater tot casserole, which was, Yum. if you want the recipe, I'm going to give it to you right now. One layer <laughs> okay. of tater tots, okay? Mm-hmm. One layer of ground beef, gently simmered but not completely done. Two okay. cans of condensed, Stephen, condensed cream of mushroom soup. Oof. Um, and, a, and then another layer of tater tots, tots on top and then cheese on top of the tater tots. Um, what kind of cheese? Cheddar cheese? The, sh- the shredded cheese? Boy, I... Velveeta, probably. Yeah, no, you know, it wasn't... We didn't have American cheese, so it must have been cheddar cheese. Yeah, we might have even been... We might have, like, mixed it up and gone crazy with some Monterey Jack, you know? Mm. Um, but, uh, you know... That's your culture right there, man. That's your culture, Rain. But uh, how how can I... I guess, I mean, what's the what's my question here? How do I connect to my... To my culture and my homeland, with that being the principal dish of See, my household. This is this is this is a this is a, a real issue for for uh, uh, shall we say white people, right? Like for me, food as a Persian, I mean, it's all about food. Like it's basically it's how about food. it's how we define ourselves. Like what no is Persian question. culture? It's Persian food. That's food. what it is. Um, and in fact, you know. Uh, as you know, now that I'm older and I have kids and stuff, and you know, my like t- whatever teens and twenties, I just kind of like separated myself from my culture as much as possible and try to be as white as I possibly could. And but now, now I have kids and I want them to be connected to their culture in some way. Um, and the, I only know two ways of doing it. One is to teach them Persian, the language, so you know they take Persian lessons. The only other way is to feed them Persian food. Like I literally had to go and teach myself how to cook mm-hmm. Persian food, so that I could at at the very least, well, a so to I give your children some cultural identity. Eyes. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, because they're not going to get it from their mom. Their mom, you know, like whatever Anglo. By the way, Saxon, just sidebar, German sidebar. The uh, Persian food is criminally underappreciated and underrepresented. Oh, dude. Persian food. Come on. Is is so delicious. I I love best. it. I love it. Gorma sabze, fesinjun. This Oh, come on. It's and in, all the kebabs. The kebab stuff is crazy. They make rice tadik. and kebabs better than anyone. Tadik, the burnt rice. Um it's I mean, we burn rice on purpose, people. Oh, yeah. Is this um, I mean, yeah, burnt burn is is in quotation marks only. But yeah, I mean but this, this but but crisp. But yeah. so for me, that's very easy to connect myself. Like I really, really feel it. Kind of, you know, the stuff that you talk about, about how like food allows, especially like diaspora communities to really connect to their homeland, especially when they can't go to there. I can't go back to Iran, right? My kids can't actually go to Iran right now. So like food is the only way that I could connect it to them. But then I think about Rain or I think about my wife, Jessica. Jessica, who, you know, like Rain, just kind of a, you know, wasp. And, uh, you know, the only connection she has to any kind of, you know, cultural past is that once a year she makes uh, sausage and sauerkraut for New Year's. And like, that's her, that's literally the only connection that she has yeah. to her culture and her past. It's really interesting. You know, I think that, um, well, there's a couple ways that I would, I would answer that. Um, 
this is a deep conversation to me, actually. Um, in my opinion, this is an opportunity for my white brothers and sisters out there, right, of European ancestry. Because what happens as part of the dominant culture is that it, it brings you into a place of complacency, right? When things come easily, naturally, natively, intuitively for you, like it's easy to become complacent. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. what you're talking about, Reza, when you're saying I had to learn to cook because I'm going to lose a piece of myself and my family if I don't learn how to cook and pass this along, like that is part of the experience of being a brown man in a white man's world. Mm -hmm. And we know that. We know that we have to fight for that terrain. We understand the, the searing urgency of passing down that culinary language because that is what is needed. That's all we've got, right? If we are part of a, a more complacent culture who, because of the dominant position, hasn't had to do the same type of introspection, then it's harder to have the curiosity to make those connections, in my opinion, because the history is a two-way street. <laughs> you know, we didn't bring ourselves to this continent, right? Those vessels were filled with grains from Africa that had to keep captured slaves alive. That's an agricultural story, you know, talking about um, tomatoes and pork uh, and, yes, hamburgers and pancakes in the U.S. Like, that's a European diaspora story. But Europeans don't see themselves in that story. They see the shame of those vessels and that, that forced uh, labor. Right. But it's harder to see themselves as actors in that story. And so if I were of, say, like, I don't know, German ancestry hmm. um, in, in, in New York, I'd be like, hey, you you like the hamburger? You know, you like you like pancakes, you like pastries, you like donuts. These are my people. We're incredible at baking. You know, like Dutch patisserie, like everyone knows about the French, but like Dutch patisserie, like get into it, you know? And so I think there is so much room for specific exploration, even if <laughs> sometimes the, the places where that exploration leads is like, mm, well, these grains sure aren't as exciting as like all of those spices in South Asia, but the presence I mean, in a more modern context, 100 years, 50 years, 20 years, indefinitely now of a place like London, where you can get some of the best Indian food yeah. in the world, you know, centuries later, right? Like there is, a, there is a continuum there that includes both people of color, both members of diaspora, and also a bunch of Europeans, right? 
And so I would just encourage, um, you know, my European descendants and, and my white kin to like have more curiosity and, and don't be afraid to see yourselves in those narratives, even though it can be really scary to do that. Because when you really start to look at this historical um, yeah. story of the U.S. and colonization, it's like, ooh, don't want to be the white person implicated in that story. Therefore, my history only begins, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and so on. But really, we are all connected to this 500-plus uh, year experiment of, of colonization and, and displacement. That is that is very true. But my history... Stephen, it is a little different. My history did start about 70 years ago, and that was in uh, 1953 uh, with Orida Corporation, the creators of the tater tot, <laughs> which is a true yeah. story. I, I looked it up in preparation for this. I was like, these two Mormon brothers who founded Orida, they took the scraps from the French fry machine and just like, what do we do with all this wasted Genius. potato? Let's slam it up into little delectable nuggets. And they it is such like, a delectable I, I, I mean, nugget. In all honesty, I'm curious about this, Rain, because like, as a white man, <laughs> um, what do you I, do? You have like, is there food or are there certain ingredient ingredients besides tater tots that like? When you're in the presence of or when you're eating, you think to yourself, oh, this is me. Because like for me, it's obvious. Like Persian food is so obvious and it's so distinct. And like the ingredients are, you know, it's like, oh, saffron. Yeah, you just go and get saffron. You put saffron into things and then you make those things Persian. But like, I, I truly am curious about this for someone like you. Like, I mean, do you have that kind of sort of deep psychic connection to food in the way that, you know, people of color do. No, I, I, I think Stephen hit the nail on the head. I think there's a, a part of, part of what comes along with uh, privilege is obliviousness, you know? And for us growing up, you know, I grew up in that post Eisenhower, just whitewashed suburban America. And there wasn't a connection to food, you know, that just, there was just food. There was, Swanson TV dinners and sometimes meatloaf and sometimes sometimes fried chicken and mac and cheese and greens. Mm -hmm. And we just thought of it as food. And so there was a kind of a, a, a blithe, oblivious quality to that. Personally, I'm missing out because I don't have that, I don't have the connection of 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 food and culture. And it and it's very tricky on across all, you know all all of my cultural heritage speaking as the white dude at the table here although persians are the original caucasians so really thank you Reza, yes, thank not you not enough people thank you very credit. much <laughs> uh, they're from the, literally from the caucasus they're caucasian yes. from the caucasus mountains i mean iran literally means land of the aryans people yes aryan thank you very much but they you know it's um i guess i don't know mountain bikes <laughs> uh, no, but I don't know, you know, I don't, it's, it's so different being like, you know, what, yeah. what is white American culture? It's hard to put, it's hard to put your finger on. And it's um, because it has appropriated, listen, there's a great grand experiment that the founding fathers of America uh, tried in name only to put into 
practice, which is, you know, e pluribus unum out of many one. And obviously that did not work. It did not take. It was uh, grotesquely unjust. And uh, when women or black folk or indigenous folks who were the real Americans couldn't vote or participate in the government in any way, we all know this whole story. But so America has uh, a, a good concept at its center that has never been able to put in correctly into place and justly into place. So that kind of makes us suburban white folks a little bit lost. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm, I, I'm really, I actually haven't had this specific conversation with a white person before. I, um, I wonder, it's making me wonder about the, the relationship to land that, that I was speaking on earlier, mm-hmm. right? Because the, the part of the promise of, of the founding fathers and making a country for white people, um, after the part about owning land was about getting you off the land as the laborer, right? Um, and so I actually think that a lot of uh, white culture was lost in the last hundred years when white folks left small farms uh, in, in all in rural parts of, of America Um in hopes of kind of office jobs, corporate jobs, industrial jobs, really, you know, at the, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and I think that was a false promise. And, and the folks who ended up owning large swaths of land were mostly not working class white people. And so, you know, what gets lost, uh, as, as people of all, you know, races leave the land um, is that kind of intimacy with food and identity. Um, and so I do wonder, because of the the ongoing commodification of the land, uh, the extractive relationship to the land, um, in a way has kind of undermined, uh, you know, the relationship between food and kind of white cultural or European cultural heritage, you know? I, and and I think that you're you're bringing up a topic we haven't really covered, which is class. And you're exactly right. Is like yeah. my ancestors were small family farmers, which barely mm-hmm. exist anymore in this kind of monofol, you know, mono farming cultural uh, and economic landscape. And so you lose that connection to the land. You lose your connection to the food. You're not growing the food. Mm-hmm. You're not eating the food. You're not buying the food from the neighborhoods. So there's that whole economic element you're bringing up. But here's the magic of food in my view, like, you know, kind of coming to the end of this conversation about food is inherently political and food is about class and race and, and you are what you eat in the sense that, you know, it's so much of your identity can be um, summarized by the, the kinds of food that you eat or the kinds of foods that you have connections to, be they, you know, kebabs or tater tots. What's magical about tater tot kebabs? Tater tot kebabs is exactly the point that we I'm can, trying to make. We right can now. make a killing, although this is what Stephen's talking about. <laughs> That's true. We make a, a killing yeah. on the backs of, right. of who? You know? Well, let's we'll decide right, once, right. we'll once get we that. get rid of Stephen, we'll put our, our business plan together. But while Very Stephen nice. is here, let's be a little bit more, okay. you know, yes. hoity toity about this. Um classy. I think what's what's amazing about this conversation, the way that we're talking and thinking about food, is that in the same way that, as we have discussed, food can be used 
to control and divide and has been throughout all history. And it can, you know, be used to appropriate culture for profit, as we've discussed. But the great thing about food also is that it is a perfect vehicle for bringing, you know, peoples of different cultures together, different classes, different, um, you know, communities together. Like when I take white people to a Persian restaurant, it's the greatest joy in the world. Like, especially if it's like they've never had it before. They're just like, oh my God. So it's just a mountain of meat and rice? It's like, yes, that's exactly what it is. And I can eat it with my hands? Yes. You can just literally grab it with your hands and shove it in your mouth. Um, and it's beautiful, right? It, there's it, there's something really, really beautiful about it. So, and, you know, just kind of bringing this conversation to a close, I, I just, I want you to sort of talk about the magic of food, right? Um, as a means of not bringing us together in the sort of the cliched way, like, oh, we all come together and we break bread and it's wonderful. That's not what I mean. I mean, you can actually share a, a small part of my culture, what it means to be Reza Aslan, right? How I define myself and all the complexities, all those weird markers, you know, my religion, my race, my skin color, my ethnicity, my nationality, my culture, all of those things that make up who I am that I, that you, by definition, are separated from. But there's one thing that I can do. I, I You know, I, I can have you listen to my music or, or experience my art, but it's different. I can feed you my food. Well, that's, right? this is, I'm just jumping super quick. I don't hear your Obviously, you're, you're that was really all I had to say. Ex- <laughs> expert advice on this, Stephen. But in episode two of High on the Hog, there's that wonderful young woman uh, in North Carolina who's a farmer and studies uh, traditional uh, black foods. The one with the, the they're going to put the freeway through her, her mm-hmm. yard, and um, she had those beautiful photos of the communal tables that she would invite mm-hmm. people. And, and cook for them from what she had grown right there in the garden patch. And, mm-hmm. and that really struck something with me. It's like part of it, and I'm going to go back to being a, a whitey here, is I have such a lousy relationship to the act of eating too. Eating is something you either get through in order to watch television or it's something you do in front of the television. So um, the idea of a communal table, of bringing people maybe all the different ethnicities and backgrounds and sharing food and sharing recipes and, and breaking bread and communing. And maybe it's something we long for in these COVID times. Maybe that's, that's the antidote to what you're talking about, Rez. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's probably worth asking ourselves um, who benefits from the dissolution of communal tables, Hmm. right? Um, so in other words, the Pepsi corporation, um, bingo, right? So when you look at the industrialization of our food over the last century, um, it's not just the degradation of the soil, which we now know all too well. Um, it's not just the fact that farmers are getting into contracts that will keep them working poor, uh, forever and ever until they die. Um, But what is least explored is the degradation of the social fabric, 
not just the soil, of people who wake up with the sun, move through the seasons, live off the land, feed their families, right? That undermines the largest industry in the United States Mm. of agriculture, Mm. right? And so when you look at uh, the potential, and this is why I'm such an advocate for us all collectively, not looking at food bringing us together in a way that is hokey or performative or for virality, but really looking at the ways in which food has been ignored and underestimated as a means of organizing, as a means of community building, Mm -hmm. as a means of saying, this is who I am, and I'm inviting you to get to know me on a human level, right? An invitation. And so it is one of the only universal languages that we all share. We don't share conversations and culture around breathing or taking a shit, right? We share, we share no, these relationships. Yes. Maybe, actually, it's not my business. It's about the food. And so I, what I uh, would sort of close with and, and continue to um, always encourage people to do is in deepening the relationship with your food and identity, the places that you will go on that journey um, will really have you asking questions about who controls the food and the origins of our food that may radicalize you in ways that you never even imagined. All right, Stephen. So uh, we always end our um, conversations with our guests with something that we call light, the lightning round. So we basically ask you uh, a question and then you just kind of give us the first answer that pops into your mind. Okay, I'm really bad at this, this type yeah. of thing. I'm uh, so most bad people at are this. bad at this. Most people okay. hate this part and yet we insist on doing it. We've done... <laughs> Something like no. 60 episodes. And this is good radio. Force. I know. Yeah. yeah. Let's do okay. it. Are you ready? Here we go. Yeah. You start, Ray. Okay. What emotion do you have that you wish you could better control? Hmm. Um, uh, laziness? <laughs> <laughs> That's not exactly an emotion, but I, I hear love you. the emotion uh-huh. of laziness. I really relate. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I already gave y'all a disclaimer. I don't know. Okay. I am, I am as an emotionally lazy person, I completely, completely identify with your... Uh, oh my God. Okay. Um, Next one. I'm ready. If you could trade places with anyone in the world living, who would it be? Yeah. Don't trade uh, places with a dead person. That yeah. No, I don't. I want to be alive. Um, sheesh. Honestly, right now, I think I'm sitting pretty. I'm doing good. pretty good. I'm going to hold tight on being okay, Stephen Satterfield for now. What is uh, something few people know about you? Hmm. Few people know. Um, I'm a big NBA fan. I almost never talk about my professional basketball fandom, but I am one. Who, what, what's your team? The Hawks? Um, I'm a big Hawks Blazers. fan. Uh Blazers. I'm not really a Blazers guy, even though I did live in Portland. Um, I like the Hawks. Uh, that in itself is a testament to my fandom, actually, I yeah. feel. Um, and I, I'm a big LeBron James fan, I have to say. We um, are the same age. I've been watching him play his whole 
uh, adult life and have always been a fan. So most people don't know that. If you were a food, what food would you be? Mm. Um, I think that I would probably be uh, rice. Oh, kind of bland. <laughs> White. <laughs> I well, see it. I mean, first of all, um, their rice is quite diverse. Um, so, you know, the homogeneity that we're seeing. We is need rice industrial food. We, we have a ton. We have uh, the Oriza glabarima from Africa, uh, of which I'm a descendant. So I'm from the rice, um, just like our, our Asian kin are also all derivative right. of rice. Also flowers. There's a lot of flexibility with rice that don't immediately come to mind. Croquettes. There's a lot going on there. What is one eye-opening experience that every person should have? Everyone should be in a room where they are overwhelmingly in the minority. Name something a lot of people like, but you can't stand. How about Friends, the TV show? <laughs> I just thought, for a second, I really honestly just thought you meant friends. Like, no, I, I, love, the big, I love my friends. The that, that's a thing that sticks with me, um, you know, from, from my childhood. I, I never understood it back then. And now my niece, who's 13 years old, I caught her watching friends on her iPhone the other day. I'm like, you're watching friends? I, didn't, <laughs> I don't get it. I don't understand the appeal. Really, i shocked that you, you wouldn't see yourself in uh well i guess that's true gosh (laughs) i guess that's true uh describe your soul in 10 words or less gosh um weary confounded um curious ecstatic uh those are that's less than 10 words that's not bad well done if you could have coffee with 19-year-old Stephen Satterfield, what would you tell him? Just chill. Enjoy it. You're on the right path. Um, you're going to be nervous. It's going to seem like it's not going to work. You're going to be broke for so many years. Holy shit, that's going to suck. But you'll be fine, and you're on the right path, and I'm proud of you. Nice. Beautiful. And finally... Stephen, what is your life's big question? Can I do everything I want before my life is over? Good yeah. answer. That's a good one. Fantastic. Stephen Satterfield, thank you so much for coming on Metaphysical Milkshake. Uh, really inspiring conversation, thought-provoking, and um, I, I've, I've learned a ton, and I'm really... has. Has your show and this conversation has really gotten me thinking about food and culture in a whole different way. Everybody go check out High on the Hog, Netflix, season two coming soon. When does season two drop? Uh, I don't know, but we are filming this year, so soon. And your magazine, Whetstone. That sounds fascinating. Yes, uh, and Podcast Network. So we make podcasts from all over the world, print magazines on food origins from all over the world. Beautiful. Thanks for coming by, Stephen. Appreciate y'all having me. Really enjoyed this chat. I like that Stephen Satterfield. He, brilliant man. Brilliant man. A smart guy. Insightful. Very smart guy. Yeah. But 
now that he's gone, yeah. <laughs> oh, can we? Yeah, can we like go back to this tater kebab idea? There's, like, I, you know, now that he's not in the conversation anymore, I feel guilty talking about it in front of him. This is gonna be good. This is gonna be so good. So, what kind of meat are we talking about with the taters? Maybe the lamb. I mean, I think you could the lamb you kebab. Could stuff them with anything, right? Like you could take the like the like if they had a tater shell. See, I was thinking then a chunk of like a like a Persian kebab, like a chunk of lamb and a tater tot and another chunk and a tater tot. Oh, you I know? see. Instead of like you know, we we sometimes put like peppers or onions and stuff in between. Yeah, the, the fillers. Put the, the tater tot yeah. in between the meat. Yeah. So it's your meat and potatoes, but Persian style with a little bit of like Scandinavian. Uh, Lutheran Northern Plains component. And and we can tell everyone that it's like our attempt to marry our two cultures. Yes. We're good friends. Right. It's our way mm-hmm. of of bonding. But really, yeah. we could we could make so much money. Catching. We're totally on the same page. How do we cash in on this? Said every uh, American ever. Milkshakers, you know how we do this. Uh, when you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and you ask a question, one of your life's big questions in your comments, you get to come on our show and ask us that question yourself. And that's exactly what we have today. We have Shanti from California. Hi, Shanti. Hi. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Ooh, I love it. <laughs> we could own. You met, you get more Shanti jokes than I get rain jokes, I bet. It's possible. It is definitely possible. Uh, so we're the, our assumption is that your parents were hippies. Oh, my God. You guys are so right. Yeah. Total hippies, yeah. born and raised in the middle of nowhere on the big island of Hawaii. Well, that, that uh, explains it. That wow. explains it. Do you have siblings? Do they have similarly hippie names? No, I have one sibling. And his name is Jason. So close enough, Ryan. Close enough. Jason is Shanti. I know. Trust me. When I was like a teenager, I kept telling my parents, I'm like, I don't understand why I I know I was first, but like I got this and he got that. Like I don't get it. Nobody can spell. I'm gonna Go tell ahead. you what happened. They they <laughs> sold that land, they became Republicans, <laughs> and they were like, Jason. What about No, I mean the brother might be, but they're not. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a fair assumption. That was fair. Yeah. That was fair. Well, My name was Jason before I changed it to Rain because I knew to make <laughs> it in go. Hollywood, I had to have uh, Jason Wilson was just not going to cut it. Yeah, Jason. I, I think it. there is already it. a Jason Wilson. Isn't there? Well, like there's a, probably a dozen. Yeah. Shanti, yeah. anyway. um, what brings you to the show? You got a life's big question you're wrestling with, you're pondering. I do. And now that Reza kind of brought up a little bit of my background, I think this question will make even more sense. So, I was born and raised a vegetarian. I'm sure you're shocked based on hippie parents. No, not okay. at all. <laughs> and it's always been like a weird thing. It's like, I get that I'm picky. I get that I'm a vegetarian. And, you know, people want me, you know, it's psychological. Like, and I feel like it is psychological, but I just, I don't know how to change, how to make it different, especially at this age. And, you know, it's it, it's a difficult thing. And I'm just wondering what kind of advice you guys have for me being kind of a weird vegetarian. You want to you want to change? You do you want to not be a vegetarian, but you can't don't quite well, understand. I I would love to like expand my horizons a little bit, but it's like a psychological thing that I just don't know how to get over because, you know, protein-wise, it can be very difficult. Yeah, that's true. I bet you eat a lot of nuts. Nuts, cheese, which is not great for you, especially, you know, as, you know, 
as the time goes by, it's it's not great that I eat way too much cheese, way too many carbs. Yeah. And I just don't know, like at this point, it, can I change? Can I alter? Because it is psychological. Let me ask you this. Do you eat fish? No. Wow. So, so but you eat I cheese, like but not fish. Nothing so, with a face. Yes. Nothing with a face. I preface this by saying, yes, that's what I always say. I did preface by, I'm a little weird, but yes, nothing with the face. And then of mm. course I get the jokes of like a head of lettuce. Isn't that a face? I'm like, no, it's no, uh, no, no. The, smack work. those people in the head when they say that. I've tried. <laughs> uh, well, look, I mean, this is, this is kind of a strange question, right? Uh, Rain. Cause I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that it is better to be a vegetarian. Vegetarians eat less fat, less they have less cholesterol, they get more vitamins, ten, ten, they tend to get more vitamins, you know, because they're eating so many vegetables, things like that, more fiber, uh, uh, you know. And obviously, it's better for the environment. I mean, we all know what cow farts are doing to the yes, world. Absolutely. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, we've seen enough food documentaries to know, you know, the evil that is mass production of meat. So I guess the, the more important question is, why, why do you want to stop being a good and responsible steward of the planet and your body and instead be like the rest of us? Well, no, I mean, you're 100% right. And like, I, I, you know, I really want to help with climate change and sustainability. I know that you guys are big on that too. But like, you know, there's vegan, there's vegetarian, and there's, you know, my husband happens to be keto and he's, so he's killing the planet. What? But I think it, How does that know, work with the two of you? I don't know. You see what I'm saying? I he's told just you, like it was a weird thing. A bowl of bacon for, for lunch and, sure. you know, that, you're that like eating okay a celery? Him. Yeah, that would be okay with him. I mean, I think just <laughs> like, you know, listen, I've tried to, I've tried meat before. You know, but but it's, I'm just wondering, like, is uh, yeah, you're right. Do I just stay a vegetarian and not have any shame on it? Mm. You know what I mean? Even though I feel like vegetarians are still seen as very weird. Like, it's cool to be vegan and it's okay to eat meat, but I live in this like middle ground of like vegetarians being weird. And you know, when you have your doctors going, you're not eating enough protein, and like you're, I am trying protein power, but I kind of wonder, like, do I need hypnosis to try to like expand my horizons, wow. or do I just be like, you're fine? What do you think, Rainier? I, you know, I'm so out of my league on this question. Um, you know, I guess uh, it's uh, this. This really, if you look at it, if you if you're taking the twenty thousand foot view, you know, what is the life's big question around this? It's kind of like, hey, is this lifestyle that I'm living sustainable? I'm not really happy with it. Um, I think you should. Uh, uh, rethink it and and try some try some different things and make sure that you're doing what you're doing consciously and just not out of any kind of rote and habit. So that's what we uh, attempt to do as human beings is to live with more and more consciousness in everything we do. And it sounds to me like you're just kind of like eating the same stuff. And it's true. I was a vegetarian. I tried vegan for about nine months. It was it was really hard, but really awesome. Um, vegetarian is hard because you can eat bags of corn chips and cheese and crackers right. and you can balloon and gain tons of weight and you can have pasta, right? And yep. you can just totally carb load. So, uh, but I do think you need to kind of uh, go on a deep dive, perhaps maybe some cooking classes, work with a nutritionist mm -hmm. to try and uh, live uh, as consciously with your food uh, uh as as possible, um, perhaps 
perhaps take a vegan cooking class and and tra- take that extra step toward vegan for a while and see how that works for you. That's a really good idea. Have you ever gone vegan? I haven't because I, you know, you're right. The pasta, the cheese, the chips, those are hard to give up, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can still eat a lot of those as a vegan, but um, right. uh, it, it makes it much more difficult. But um, yeah, that's 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 tough. But it it sounds like you have been a vegetarian out of habit and not yes. out of consciousness. So how do you align your relationship with food with a conscious practice? Hmm. That was deep. That makes a lot of sense. But it makes a lot of sense because you're right, Rain. I feel like it is very much psychological. It's very, it's very much out of habit and practice. And yeah. Not necessarily a good practice. I mean, I suppose you are preparing for the inevitable future when, you know, right. we're all just eating manufactured food that's basically just various versions of soy. I mean, I made my kids impossible burgers last night. Those things are good. It's it's better than meat. It's better. That that it is better because you don't you don't feel all bloated afterwards. No, you have the same delicious interaction with yeah. the, with the burger, but then you don't feel like you're gonna pass out. I mean that shit bleeds, right. which is weird. I don't want to bleeds. I don't want to talk is, about. Yeah, it. that is weird. That but is it's, weird. I mean, it is good. my whole family, my whole family eats meat again, and I guess you know. Wait, I guess I your have, like, your hippie parents are back to meat. My my mom eats fish and chicken. My brother eats eats meat like he's it's going out of so style. It's just so you. Well, it, that's my point. Like okay. that's like that's like I guess you know even more of the deeper dive of like I always feel like I'm just like this big weirdo and like all my family eats meat and they're like well can't you just try it and even when I do try it I could have a bite and like you know the smell of barbecue is great and you know chicken and all turkey or whatever <sighs> and then psychologically I'm like oh my god what did I just do and it's psychological. What if she only ate a face? <laughs> like the face of a cow a or something I like that. I only Just eat faces. Confront your deepest fears. I'm definitely going to need some therapy for that one. Yeah, confront your deepest fears. Eat a fish face. Shanti, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I don't know Thank if we were much help. So much. And, um, Actually, you guys were. I think I think, I think, okay. trying something different as well as, you know, maybe, you know, getting some, some, some help with a nutritionist and a the therapist. I think that's very helpful, yeah. you guys. All right. Good. All right, well, thanks, for, thanks for calling in. Thank you guys so much. Bye-bye. And uh, Milkshakers, as you know, we would love to have you on our show. Please write us on the old social media. Leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts and post your life's big question. We'll track you down and bring you on the show and have a scintillating discussion with you. We love to hear from our listeners. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Paris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. Original music by Jeff Tang. Although Persians are the original Caucasians, so really, thank you, Reza. Yes, thank you. People thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> the they're from the, literally from the Caucasus. They're Caucasian yes. from the Caucasus, 
mountains. I mean, Iran literally means land of the Aryans, people. Yes, Aryan. Thank you very much. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.